Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. 23% is going to take huge changes in our economy. There's going to be a huge fight to work out how to get that safeguard mechanism in place. There's going to be huge amounts of investment and pain and, you know, transmission lines through people's backyards and all sorts of stuff to deliver that 43%. And to belittle that around a sort of a kind of symbolic argument about a higher target is crazy. Hello, lovely pod people. You're on Australian Politics and I'm Catherine Murphy. My guest this week is Felicity Wade. Felicity is the co-convener of the Labor Environment Action Network. Now, we'll get into what that is in this conversation. I just want to make clear, though, before we dive in for listeners, that this conversation was recorded earlier this week, Tuesday, shortly after the new Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, delivered a major statement on, uh, well, I guess, the health of the Australian environment. And she set some signposts uh, for uh, the new government's thinking about how environmental regulation needs to be overhauled to make sure that we don't fry the planet, basically. Anyway, Felicity and I will get into all of those issues and many more. Listen up. Felicity, why don't we explain to people what is, uh, what is LEAN? What is the Labor Environment Action Network? What is this? Lean is um, been around actually in some form since about 2004, and it is the internal lobby group within the Labor Party on environment and climate. It was set up by two young uh, Labor aspirants, uh, Jenny McAllister and Christina Keneally, and uh, did some good work in New South Wales right back then in the mid-2000s. It then had a couple of more iterations, but in about 2013, as Labor was facing a devastating loss where the coalition had really weaponised climate change so effectively, various people came to me and said, how about you rebuild Lean? Because we're going to have to have a voice to hold the backlash. So Lean is uh, very much and proudly a grassroots organisation. It's about giving Labor membership a voice on these issues. And I guess what is so overwhelming about what Lean has done is that the Labor membership is passionate about climate and environment. And when asked, they have come out in droves to support our calls for stronger environment and climate change action. And the point of it uh, too is that it's, you know, it's a grassroots uh, organisation within Labor, as you say, but it's also that story you tell about its origins, right, or, or the reboot. It's It's relevant in the to the extent that, you know, this organisation holds Labor's feet to the fire about climate action 
as well as obviously making the case more broadly in the community, right? Like as veteran of several Labor conferences watching Felicity organise <laughs> to get motions onto the floor, which uh, she inevitably has the numbers for, uh, you know, I'm just explaining that, that it's that it's a, sort, it's a ginger group to keep uh, Labor open and active about the imperative of action as well as making that case to sort of hold back the general tide of... Well, I don't know, what would you call it? Horrors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, watching the planet die. Yeah, watching yeah, the planet yeah. die. No, yeah, and think, certainly yeah. I guess the big two campaigns, you know, in 2000 and in the lead up to 2015 when Labor had had this devastating loss, Labor uh, lean organised around what we call the 50-50 campaign, which was calling for 50% renewables and a 50% emission reduction target by 2030, 370 local branches. We had volunteers go out and just talk to people, go and, you know, get, you know, and we have quite a democratic process still in the Labor Party, often subverted, often, mm, you know, sure. hard to see. Sure. But, you know, we decided to use that democratic process and got 370 local branches to endorse that position. We then went to the, the National Conference, which is the key policymaking forum of the party, and challenged the party to ignore the membership so so clearly united. We did it again on the need to um, have new environment laws and an EPA when 500 Labor branches, yes. you know, there still are six or 700 Labor branches around the country of people who turn up once a month getting nothing from it but trying to make Australia a better place. Yeah. And we really decided that, that that needed a voice and that voice could be used to keep the pressure on the party. And now we've explained that, your position in the firmament, uh, people listening and who follow politics closely will know exactly why you're here because... Uh, we, we, we're in a very big week this week for the environment and for climate because the 47th Parliament is about to open. And we'll get to the specifics of Bowen and the, Chris Bowen and the climate bill. But this week, if you've been watching politics closely, you will know that the new Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, released the State of the Environment report, which is, well, just a disaster, basically. Yes, and set down some initial thoughts at the National Press Club, which uh, we're going to work over in this conversation. So that's happening, and we've also got this run-up to uh, whether or not Labor's first run of climate bills are actually going to pass this new parliament. So busy, busy, busy. Um, so, you know, it, it seems ridiculous to ask, but I will ask, uh, you know, are the climate wars over, Felicity? If only they were. <laughs> <laughs> if only, if only. I think what we have is a climate truce. You know, there was a, a very emphatic a majority, I think you'd say, between Labor, Greens and the Teals at this election who said that's enough, we need climate action. But it's only a few short years to back to 2019 when communities who were going to be impacted by these changes also said that's enough, we're not going to let you rip from underneath us our security and our job futures without taking due consideration. And then you mix into all of that. That's actually the real politic of real what electors think. And you mix into that the political in aims and interests of both the left and the right of Australian politics. And we're sitting on a very precarious ledge trying to find a way forward. Yeah. Okay. We're on our ledge, <laughs> looking, surveying the scene. We've, yeah, everybody's retreated to their various corners, hydrating and sharpening their spears. Um, let's start with environment. On Tuesday, uh, Tanya Plibersek released the State of the Environment report. She also gave a speech to the National Press Club, which in my line of work we would call a scene setter for uh, where things are going to go uh, over the next several years. You know, we can sort of imagine, uh, I think, 
you and I, Susan Lee, standing up and fronting that report, I think we would have heard a different speech. Uh, there were there were sort of broad brushstrokes, but there's a lot of uh, fine print in this area that really matters, uh, and we're not really sure yet how much uh, the new government is sort of going to. Uh, well, I guess really reform the sort of critical areas of environmental regulation. So, so what did, what did you make of the speech, just as a as a general bit of signalling, and then why don't we work through what needs to happen? Sure, as Tanya explained very clearly in her speech, it's a very very grim report. Um, you know, we're extincting animals faster than anywhere else in the world. The greater gyla and the koala being these kind of iconic, once common species are going through the floor. We've got a problem. We've cleared 7.7 million hectares of mm-hmm. threatened species habitat since 2000. And that's, you know, that's the size of Tasmania. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are in a big mess. And I guess what was also really interesting in this report was for the first time, even though the report told the story, the same story as last time the report was written five years ago, instead of climate threats being a future thing, it really dealt with the fact that they're hitting us now. The fires, the droughts, the floods are having devastating impact on, on the ability for the environment to function. So while I think a lot of us don't see it day to day, I think it's really important this report was there to say it's a real problem, Mm. you know. And I guess what I, I mean, I think maybe some, one of the ways we're sort of as urban dwellers sort of as Australians sometimes starting to notice it is the bush is getting silenter. Yeah. You know, we're going to end up with a silent animalist bush Mm. and that's just quite anathema, I think. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Tanya responded to that today. I mean, I think she she pointed out that really importantly that there's all of the icons and it's really important we keep doing those, we keep protecting the places people love and so on and so forth, but systemic change has to happen. Mm. So, so if you don't follow this area closely, what systemic change has to happen? Duclean had worked very, very hard in opposition to really try and build a building, the sort of building blocks for what needs to to, to happen. And I think one of the things we, we often refer back to, and I don't think it's unfair to say, the Hawke government was probably the last time we had an Australian government who was really trying to do this level of engagement of actually protecting the environment. Um, Bob Hawke, of course, famously protected the Franklin. And for me, I was in early high school and that was my political awakening. It was, you know, a deep sense of nationalism about, you know, how beautiful Australia is. And it was a sense governments did important things. And that really, you know, was important for me. But he protected Kakadu. He did the international mining ban in Antarctica and so on and so forth. But probably even more importantly than that, he tried to do, look, think about the environment as part of the system of the economy and of the society. Yeah. So in 1992, he launched the National uh, Policy on Ecologically Sustainable Development and there's a real attempt to start trying to work out what that meant across all the pieces of, of life in a society and in a government. The other really one I love is he, when he set up the Productivity Commission, which was called the Industry Commission at the time, he also set up Resource Assessment Commission. Mm-hmm. So when he was setting up these key institutions to address the economic challenges, he sat beside it, an institution with exactly the same model of inquiry and investigation to think about how we deal with our natural world. Yeah. Paul Keating did basically undermine, dismantle both of those key initiatives. <laughs> but leaving that aside, uh, I think... It was, it was good until it wasn't. Yeah, it was yeah. good until it wasn't. Yeah. And, you know, and I guess with the dire news now, with business having shifted its position, 
the Albanese government has to match the Hawke government on that big picture thinking. Mm-hmm. And do, and do, what do you think? Uh, obviously, you know, as they say in the classics, only time will tell. But but well, sorry, I'm, I'm sort of I'm racing you a bit because you need to work through the architecture yes. first before we we reach the point about whether whether or not any of this can or will happen. So keep going through the architecture. Yeah, okay. So I think that the the key pieces of architecture that I think are really you know there's a thousand bits of rats and mice in in environment and it's complicated. You know that's one of the reasons it's hard to do and why governments have retreated. But um, the three pieces of architecture we've been thinking about is first of all the commitment to new environment laws and an EPA. Yep. Um, under the coalition, Graham Samuel did a, a review in the last couple of years, uh, you know, well-respected conservative figure who basically said it's a real mess. Yeah. They're rubbish laws, they're too complicated, there's no outcomes, all the things Labor said in 1999 when John Howard put them in place. Um, for business, they also have problems with them. Apparently there's 31 different pathways to approvals. There's duplication, there's, yeah. you know, it's just a mess. So um, what what Samuel talked about was, though, actually getting, rather than a process-driven uh, set of laws, which is what we've got, we actually have laws which have outcomes in them that actually obligate the government to deliver things that actually protect the environment. Mm-hmm. And also to take the focus off development approvals, because that's what people have very much focused on, to actually also the proactive work of what do we have to do to keep the environment healthy. So we're really keen on seeing, uh, you know, Labor has already committed to this. Tanya talked about it today. We want Samuel's uh, review delivered plus, Yeah. you know. Samuel's report is very good, but it was written in the political context in which he wrote it. Yeah. We need to think about climate change. Climate change isn't in the current laws. It needs to be. We need to think about what does it mean. The argument for not having them in last time around was that we had a carbon price, which was meant to be a sort of yeah. driver of the whole business. We don't have that anymore. No. We have to put climate into both how we do approvals and how we also look after the place. But Samuel, just because the, the climate trigger is really important, but it's not the only trigger I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but uh, Samuel wasn't into it though. Why? I think Samuel did suggest that in big projects which had a big carbon impact, that that should be noted, that yeah. that should be um properly explained. And we probably just actually need to break this down a fraction mm. for people who don't who aren't as enmeshed in <laughs> Yes, this is the problem. You become a yes. nerd really quickly no, in no, this no, space. No, no, no. Well, well <laughs> first of all, yeah, let's explain what is a climate trigger. What is that what, what is it in the context yeah. of what we're talking about? Well what is interesting is the interesting thing is that the term trigger has actually got quite obsolete from Samuel's proposal. Mm-hmm. Well how the old laws were set up was there was a set of triggers as they were called and these were called the matters of national environmental significance. These were the things that were identified as a Commonwealth responsibility coming out of treaties primarily, but a few extra things like uh, threatened species and the loss of species. Um, What Samuels is really talking about is rather than when you have to trigger uh, an intervention from the government because there's a problem, it's actually going back to standards. So you actually have an overarching kind of approach to things you're actually trying to deliver and then things sit underneath that, if that makes a sense. It's a different. different. And with climate change, I think it's really obvious there's a bunch of ways we have to consider it. We have to consider it in that very fundamental way of the climate impacts of new developments that has to be addressed. Uh, We have to think about it in terms of how it's affecting the environment and our ability to deliver yes. you know, you know, healthy environments. And then we also just have to think about it in terms of um, h- how the environment a- is part of mitigating and managing and adapting to yes. that problem. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, I think we, you know, it, Samuel avoided that uh, except for this quite particular proposal, but that is, I don't think that's an intellectually defensible position. Yeah, 
Right. And so is there, um, because I think uh, Tanya Plibersek on Tuesday when she was at the club, she certainly didn't rule out a climate trigger. She certainly didn't rule it out. But she sort of proactively, even before she was asked a question about it, in the in that first question, she said, oh, you know, I'm not ruling anything out, but uh, people, uh, people who are looking for guidance or looking for signals from the podium need to think more about Graham Samuels and about the climate trigger. So I'll just ask it directly. If, you know, if this circle can't be squared and, look, maybe it's not a precise climate trigger, maybe it's another sort of a mechanism that neither you nor, or, nor I have thought about, um, but if the climate is not a part of environmental regulation, big problem, right? So, so Labor has to address that point in this term. That's right. Felicity think- is nodding. Yeah, I'm nodding just helpfully on radio. Um, Yes, that is correct, that um, climate has to be, yeah, I don't think it's avoidable. Um, You know, I think there'll be a big debate about how pointy that climate consideration is, of course. Yeah, sure. Um, But we have to, yeah, that has to be done. Has to be done. Has to be done. Anyway. Um, Yes, and and, and I think the other, other, I mean, I think there's a bunch of, we really need to review what else sits in the environmental legislation federally because I think, you know, there's a long history legislatively. Of course, environment isn't mentioned in the constitution, so it's, you know, always been a bit unclear. But there's a long legislative or a long judicial history of the Commonwealth's ability, right to intervene on environment being quite strong. And I guess fundamental to this is, you know, it's time for the feds to take over leadership again. I think mm-hmm. that's the core cool message. And so plastics, I think, is one we need to think about. Mm-hmm. Land clearing is not one we need to think about. Yep. This is in the context of in 2018 and 19, that's only a few short years ago, 680,000 hectares was cleared in Queensland alone. Mm. 70,000 hectares of forests were logged. We are a global clearer in the top 10. We're the only only developed country that is in that illustrious group and we have to address that. So standards need to be strong. Those standards I talked about, you know, rather than triggers, we're talking standards that need to be strong. We need to remove exemptions and, and Samuel talked about this. One of the big ridiculous things in the EPBC Act is that the RFAs, which are the the agreements that define how logging happens between states and federal governments, were exempted. Yeah. And yet the forests of Australia are where most of our species live, so uh, an act that is set up to stop species going out backwards that exempts the very place where it all happens is ludicrous yeah. suggestion. Yeah. Um, and I guess the other thing is we we believe, contrary to Graham Samuel, is that the federal government should maintain its decision-making powers. Mm-hmm. Of course, backed up behind all that, uh, Labor has already committed to an EPA, which Lean really worked its guts out to deliver, and we also believe we need an Environment Commission mm. reflecting so many other important um, areas of public policy where, uh, com- you know, independent advice yeah. for policy innovation that doesn't just come out of the NGOs or the, the governments or, sorry, or the um, universities or whatever, that you actually are empowering that kind of capacity for, for new ideas and for, to, for doing what needs to be done. And, you know, if you sort of take the Climate Change Authority as a model, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Chris Bowen in the legislation that we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh is setting up a regular reporting mechanism to Parliament, uh, you know, it's sort of an independent assessment of progress under the targets and, you know, uh, other things as as deemed necessary, right? There's a model for that in climate change, but yet there's been resistance to applying that model in environment. Why? Why? 
I don't know. Look, I think, you know, and I think climate change is the best analogy, the closest analogy, but, you know, we have independent, I mean, I know the RBA is probably a bit on the nose right now, but we have independent advice and infrastructure Australia, a whole bunch of big important areas we do this, and yet there's been huge resistance. And the department does a lot of great things, but it does not innovate and it does not drive new ideas. And it does not hold... You know, it does not tell the truth to the public. You know, yeah. the, the State well, of the Environment report today is a once-in-a-five-year opportunity to do that, but we should entrench that capacity into to building a better environmental kind of approach. Mm. So, um, I, yeah, I think, you know, we'll, we'll be pushing hard on the analogy yeah, of well, the climate change well, yes. architecture. Yeah, well, well, I, I, I know you'll be tapping on that door, uh, <laughs> but, yes, so, okay, so... So in terms of, uh, you know, what, what will be serious in terms of, you know, you mean it. It's, it's not just nice words that you say at the podium at the press club. This is, these are structures that deliver the change that you are, you know, purporting to see. Yeah, I, I think we cannot, we cannot do, uh, unless, we, you know, unless we do a serious reform, and it's not just, yeah, it's, it's root and branch. Yeah. We will continue to lose, you know, the environment laws are totally and utterly um, inadequate to the task. Yeah. So that's number one. <laughs> I'll quickly go through number two and number yeah, yeah. three. Yeah. So that's pillar one. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Tanya was quite clear on all that today, but, you know, the devil will be in the detail and there's a lot to, a lot of water to go under the bridge. Pillar two is actually addressing the key drivers of extinctions. Mm. And that is that we have to, we have to stop the logging and clearing rates in Australia. We actually have to intervene in that particularly. You know, when um, the, the State of the Environment reports talks about the key threatening processes and, of course, habitat loss, just mowing down these animals' trees mm. is actually the thing that knocks them off most, yeah, most completely. Yeah. I mean, invasive species, so feral pests as well as fire, are now increasing challenges as well and we have to address those. But until we can get under control the fact that we uh, still see our native vegetation as something to be logged, burned and shipped off, mm. we will continue to see the disintegration of our native animals. So I think it's what's really interesting on this is that at Glasgow, the COP26 in November, uh, this connection between climate change and trees was really explicitly noted for the first time. Mm -hmm. The um, Global Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forests and Land Use both made the explicit connection between the dual crises and committed governments to seeing the natural environment and our response to keeping trees upright mm -hmm. as central to the climate change response. Yeah. So by signing that... Australia has actually committed to ending and reversing deforestation and forest degradation by 2030. Yeah. So we've got an international obligation. We've got a very clear set of responsibilities there. So that's a horny one, but one that can't be avoided. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, the third piece, I think, is um, the fact we've got all these carbon biodiversity markets coming our way. Yes, Yes. So there's a wall of private capital coming the way of, of offsets. That's both voluntary um, commitments from corporations as well as this great big, you know, pile of demand that's going to come out of the safeguard mechanism. Yes, yes. And yet we cannot just let that be a nice financialization of another thing that serves corporate interests and money moving around the money markets. Mm. <laughs> we have to make it, we have to both um, make it make sense it doesn't make sense that the coalition government has spent billions of dollars of taxpayers' money in the last years paying people to plant trees while 280,000 hectares of functioning bushland is mm. going down at the same time. Mm. That's called ludicrous, un, you know, non-, non um, Well, it's non called robbing Peter to pay Paul, isn't it? 
It's called, yeah, it's just called stupid public policy. Um, and more than that, and Labor, Lean worked very, very hard, really, you know, we worked our guts out to get the commitment to the um, carbon uh, markets review that's underway yes. that um, Chris Bowen released, announced in the last couple of weeks, um, not only to address, I mean, and our, our push sort of predates those all the problems that Andrew McIntosh and so on have identified about the weaknesses of the market, but it was really about saying we actually have to, the, the market is a key tool in what is a bigger piece of policy challenge, which is how are we going to build a carbon sink at scale mm-hmm. that also acts as a biodiversity arc and sink, and that, you know, we have to, we have to wrestle the markets into that public policy task not the other way around. Yes. Yeah. Again, if you haven't followed the credits debate, the, the most authoritative journalism that's been done in, on this question is by Adam Morton, my colleague, uh, Guardian Australia's environment and climate editor. If you go to our website and you search his byline, you'll see a bunch of stories about this, including stories about the review of the system that, that the government has just set up, which is going to be led by a former chief scientist, Ian Chubb. And look, the sort of simple version of this is the credits become very important if you're actually reducing emissions, which is what this government proposes to do through the safeguard mechanism. If you are actually proposed to have, if you have policy that drives a downward trajectory in emissions, companies do two things. They either reduce their emissions, who'd have thunk it, or they basically buy emissions reduction that has occurred elsewhere in order to acquit their responsibilities. That's the simple way of explaining it. So what Felicity's saying is that there is a review to make that system genuine and also make it not just the biggest boon that the global capital markets have seen since, you know, I don't know, the Industrial Revolution or whatever, but actually set up a policy mechanism that drives the result rather than just shifts money around and obligations around the globe. So she was very clear, but I'm just reinforcing that because I I just know even for fellow climate and energy nerds, you say the word credit and eyes start to glaze over. Yeah, so anyway, it's complicated. It is complicated. Compl- and, of course, important in that too is those two things that um, trees are the only negative emission t- technology we've got that works. Yeah. So it really is the net and net zero. Yes. Um, and then, of course, while they're standing, they're continuing to sequester carbon. So by far the best way is to not let things get knocked over so we don't have any, this market does not keep things from keep things standing up. Yeah, it only plants things, and at the moment, you know, the the, the critique is it plants things in places that aren't really important. Yeah, we need to. I mean, there's a concern from environmentalists, which is very fair, that you know it becomes a cheap way to avoid reducing emissions at 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 at, at source. Yes. However, if we make this an entire integrity system where it's actually delivering biodiversity and high levels of carbon, yes. then they will be expensive. Exactly. And yeah. they will drive down that 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 incentive to no. cheat. Yeah. And I think the other thing, of course, and fundamentally is we need to bring into that system the actual high carbon landscapes, the forests, you know, all those woodlands that are being cleared in, in Queensland, we have to um, bring them into the system. We actually have to draw a map in the end. We have to draw a map which brings together the highest carbon and the highest biodiversity valuable areas and make sure the market is invests there rather than well, just invest, wherever market. The- <laughs> exactly. You set a premium on in, in, uh, investing in the right areas and, and, you know, what do you know? The money follows the premium. So, okay, very good. And is that... That's that's my three bits of architecture. Okay. So the laws, the laws and the institutions to support them, uh, dealing with the key drivers, of, which is lo- logging and clearing, and then making the markets work for us. Yeah. If we do those things right, we will have a revolution in the way we are managing Australia's environment. Yeah. 
and uh, and that really would be something. I want to move us to climate because obviously we're we're facing down the first couple of sitting weeks of the new parliament, and I'm very interested in your views about that. But before I, I push us there, um, I'm just interested. Have you found uh, the new ministers, the incoming? Environment and Climate Minister, so Plibersek and Bowen, respectively. Are, are the doors open? Are you getting good access? Uh, are they are they managing stakeholders effectively? What's what what's the early situation report on that? Look, it's funny for us advocates, you know, it's a, a whole new world where we used to be kind of a key source of advice and now they've got thousands of uh, public servants who, yeah. <laughs> who are very expert. So it's a, it is definitely a sort of a change and, a, you know, everyone's getting used to that. But, um, you know, from my point of view, I think uh, both those ministers, and I put Murray Watt in this because he's an important piece oh, in course. this, you yeah, know, yeah, if we're going is. to and turn around. Jenny, Jenny McAllister. And Jenny McAllister. And, yeah, yeah. 70% of Australia's land is in private ownership. It's not public. So that's, you know, so Murray's role will be very important. But I believe, you know, I don't think we could have done better in a set of four ministers who have the job to getting this done. And um, they will be careful, they will be respectful of stakeholders, but I think they also understand the imperative and, um, you know, are committed to working with, you know, to give you know, some of the some of the journalists pushing back on Tanya today were saying, oh, come on, come on. And, you know, she's only in the, been in the seat for six weeks and, you know, still getting around talking to stakeholders. So um, I think we should... Yes, maintain the faith. But it's but it is important, isn't it? Uh, notwithstanding, you know, your very respectful caveats, uh, which I would endorse. I mean, the woman has only been there for six weeks, but in terms of you know Labor's climate agenda, which it's been using all around the world to reset relationships and open doors and all of that sort of stuff to bring Australia back into some relationships that really matter to us in a national interest sense. You know, I think Tanya Plibersek's role, I mean, well, they're all important in their different spheres, but the two areas are interconnected, environment and climate. And if you want to achieve your climate objectives, uh, <laughs> fixing up the environment is a pretty important investment in achieving those things, right? So I imagine, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine Lean's expectations of the new environment minister is that she might actually use the platform she's been given. Certainly. Like, I mean, I think we're very keen and we've been pushing for this. And I think, you know, the government are thinking through this is how we coordinate across those portfolios, how we really build an integrated approach, because it won't work otherwise. Mm. We have to get working together. We have to work out, you know, just how, you know, they're very, it's all going to be subtle and complicated policy settings. Yeah. But um I think, you know, Tanya's had a, you know, Tanya went off to Lisbon and, you know, as as you reported, yeah. Yeah. she had got you know, a, made got a, a huge reception yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. the whole like, world was just excited to see yeah. um, you know, Labor saying we believe in this stuff. Yeah. Um, and now I guess the hard work of actually making real policy that makes a difference. Oh, exactly. Real. You've got to deliver it. Otherwise it's just words, right? So Let's think about the 43% legislation that will likely hit the parliament uh, in the first, uh, well, could be the second sitting week. I haven't actually checked, but look, it's it's five minutes to midnight. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lob either week one or week two. Uh, now, obviously, uh, there is... <laughs> There is, shall we? There are a lot of there are a lot of feelings about this uh, around the place, and I'm not saying that in some patronising way. I have feelings about it myself, and and uh, for those of us who have been prosecuting the arguments in this debate, it, is it any wonder that there are feelings about this because there's been a whole lot of pent up capacity in this system for quite a long period of time. So anyway, feelings are fine. 
But at the end of the day, the legislation will either pass or it won't. Now, the Greens, I had a long conversation with Adam Bant on this show last week and a lot of a lot of you listened, I know, because you've been in touch about it. Uh, the Greens have got a decision to make. You know, everyone's got to respect everybody else's electoral ground. Everyone has a mandate for something. That's all absolutely legit. But at the end of the day, this legislation will either pass or it will fail. Now, uh, you know, what is your view on this? What should the Greens do? Uh, it's probably not any surprise what my views on what the Greens should do. I mean, I think we're all to what you've just said, Catherine, got the PTSD experience of we've been here before. You know, this election did give a rousing endorsement for climate action, um, but we were in this place in 2007 and mm. we watched it all go wrong. Yep. We saw partisan bickering destroy that consensus in the Australian community and we saw ourselves lose you know, the 10 or 15 years it's been since that the consensus held. Um, I think it's really important, you know, the La- Labor, the Greens and the Teals, you know, need to work together, obviously. But, you know, I think one of the things that really annoys me about how the Greens position on this stuff is, of course, it's in their interests to make Labor really bad, but Labor are not climate sceptics. Labor have turned up again and again to try and solve this problem. Labor is the party that, you know, has made all those, you know, that, that actually protected the Franklin, that actually, you know, protected Kakadu, that actually put in the biggest marine reserves in the world. You know, we're a party where, you know, Lean gets, you know, as we just explained, you know, the membership is totally behind action on this stuff and so is the parliamentary party. So, you know, um, but I guess fundamentally we're also a party who has to govern for the whole of the country. And we saw what happened in 2019. And since then, one of the things Lean did post-2019 was um, set up the Hunter Jobs Alliance, which was really our response to the... Joel Fitzgibbon yeah. <laughs> had a response to 2019 <laughs> where um, the AMWU, which is one of the big uh, manufacturing workers' unions, uh, Steve Murphy, their national secretary, and I had a moment of, you know, connection where I went and spoke to his people and, you know, we realised that, you know, that the way that jobs and environment had been set up against each other was ludicrous and we needed to work together. So the Hunter Jobs Alliance is a coalition of environment and climate change, uh, sorry, environment and unions uh, that really sits in the middle of that community and says, how are we going to fix this? And look, those, those communities didn't come out with baseball bats this time. Yep. Probably, you know, I think that's from the hard work of so many of those sitting in the Hunter and in places like Gladstone and um, yeah, central Queensland more broadly. But those communities aren't ready for us to rip uh, the whole thing from under their feet. And, you know, even if you can do it electorally, even if you can imagine you can do it with billionaires and urban urban people, mm. you cannot, we cannot face the social, the, the rip in social cohesion that doing this without care delivers. Mm. So Labor has promised 43%. They got elected on 43%. There is nowhere to go for Labor on that. There's probably there's important probably stuff around making sure the language sort of makes that a floor, not a ceiling, which has been much discussed. Yeah. But in the end, and I mean, of course, course, importantly, the um, the environment groups, Australian Conservation Foundation and Greenpeace, have come out and said, "Don't stuff it, Greens." You know, if you if you like to use the kind of um, labour analogy, you know, the unions, uh, the industrial arm, and you know, the Labor Party are their political representation. The Greens and the environment groups are a little bit the same. And, um, you know, the fact that the environment groups are telling the Greens to pull their heads in, I think, is very important. Um, We've watched Biden win on climate change and then the politics to all go wrong. And we're sitting here with lived experience and these guys can blow it up in the interests of electoral, you know, 
the 10% of us who are wealthy enough and comfortable enough to to see environment as trumping all um, cost of living and, and day-to-day concerns, uh, they can build that constituency and destroy our pathway. And it's sort of, uh, you make the point that uh, I think, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's, Look, you know, Chris Bowen has made it clear that if the 43% doesn't pass the parliament, Labor will implement the 43%. Labor will, uh, via regulatory and other means, just keep going towards that objective. So, you know, look, if you were highly sceptical, you might say, look, in practical terms, well, what does it matter? It's a symbolic vote, blah, 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 blah. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if this fails? It matters really, as you say, it matters because of symbolism. It matters about the um, the political task of putting the wall behind us. It matters in terms of us um, us working together. You know, I mean, I guess this is you know, I come from the wilderness society. That's where I started. I have been in an organisation where wilderness no compromise is the slogan. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, where why I've ended up in the Labor Party is because I just see the consensus is the only way we do these things with climate change being so hard. You know, this 43% is going to take huge changes in our economy. It's going to be a huge fight to work out how to get that safeguard mechanism in place. It's going to be huge amounts of investment and pain and, you know, transmission lines through people's backyards and all sorts of stuff to to deliver that 43% and to belittle that around a sort of a a kind of symbolic argument about a higher target is crazy. Um, But the legislation matters because... Well, legislation matters because it actually holds things, makes it law. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all know how things go wrong when uh, the laws get taken away. Um, and it matters because, yeah, it's about the parliament taking leadership and saying we're working together on this. Mm, well, parliament, hopefully you're listening. Uh, and we are rollicking towards the parliament. Uh, basically, it'll kick off uh, from next Tuesday uh, for folks listening at the weekend. So, uh, you know, pack or uh, well, make sure you're hydrated, plenty of snacks. You know, because it's it's going to be a big couple of weeks and it's going to be a big six months between now and the end of the year uh, as, as everybody, uh, you know, starts to relearn, well, relearn habits, learn new ones uh, and work through some really wicked problems as uh, we've discussed over the last half an hour or so, Felicity. So thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate your frankness. Uh, appreciate you guys for listening. I appreciate Miles Martignoni, who is the EP of the show. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.